Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to ESG Currents, brought to you by Bloomberg Intelligence, your guide to navigating the evolving ESG space one topic at a time. I am Andy Stevenson, ESG researcher focused on climate. Today, we're talking about living wage with Amy Glassmeyer, who is a professor of economic geography and regional planning at MIT and the creator of the Living Wage Calculator. We'll discuss what a living wage is, how inflation is making it harder for many Americans to meet their basic needs uh, using this benchmark, and what the creation of a 40,000-store franchise juggernaut may mean for wages. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, Mr. Stevenson. Amy, you've been running a website called the Living Wage Calculator for quite a few years. What does it do? Why is it important? And who uses the calculators today? Um, The Living Wage Calculator is a web device that allows people to take a snapshot of their cost of living by counties. Uh, It's been running for 20 years and it has information that that characterizes the cost of living for different sizes of families. Uh, And um, we have uh, eight variables which are pretty common, food, childcare, healthcare, housing, transportation, civic engagement, broadband, and other necessities. Um, And people can use it on their own on the website, and they can also work with myself and my colleagues if they are interested in uh, specific data sets that don't roll out as full data sets on the web. Gotcha. Yeah, you hear about the word living wage and people talk about $15 an hour or some kind of benchmark, but clearly, it, if you, depending on where you live in the country, there's a lot of variety there. So how big of a difference is there in living wage across the country? How, how does this affect uh, public assistance programs and other ways that the federal government helps people kind of meet those basic needs? So the living wage value varies as you would expect based on the regional location that a county is found. And also there are unusual circumstances where individual states either have higher or lower um, living wages cost. um, And people can see that uh, they can look at their own states, they can look at uh, other states, uh, they can look at all the counties. And the range is from 22, dollars and 15 cents an hour in the district of columbia as the highest um, for a single person no children to the lower end of the spectrum which is south dakota 15 dollars and 15 cents an hour so even wow the the uh, south dakota case would actually not probably be able to cover their cost with 
um, this particular value primarily because of what you're um, alluding to, which is we've had tremendous variation in inflation by the individual components in the tool, and it has had a big impact on the cost of living. Gotcha. Just as an aside, what do you think is, the, what has been the biggest change in the cost of living index in the last year or so? Yeah, so the, there's probably four. Okay. Housing, food, childcare, and transportation. And in, in all of those cases, they are one way or another influenced by the price of energy, right? And we saw a big uplift and then we saw a sort of decline and then we're starting to see things creep up again um, as international circumstances change. Great. And just, just so we get us, uh, everybody on the, uh, on the podcast understands just how many people are we talking about that are really at this level or below this level in terms of basically just getting by, I think is the best way to describe it. The way the, uh, my understanding of how the calculator is, uh, is calculated is it's really just to meet those basic needs. So who is, how many people is this for, or just broadly, you know, like how many people would you say this is affecting as a percentage of the American populace? Yeah, it's a little hard to say how many people are actually affected because we have these composite households, right? Single sure. person um, all the way to three adults or, or two adults and three children. And so it's but but we can safely say that probably 50 percent of the population actually where they live um, are in situations where, based on the jobs they have, they probably um, are not making sufficient money to cover their costs. So they have to balance everything on a monthly basis. That's pretty staggering. I mean, you hear the talk about, you know, the average household can't afford a you know, $400 emergency and things like that. And this is really kind of the evidence that you have here, county by county across the country that kind of supports that, that, you know, many, many, many Americans are living on the edge. And uh, so if I can dive a little deeper into this, so what sectors in particular are these people you know, working in? Obviously this is all working peoples that are involved in this. So uh, one to start with, uh, which is really important is childcare. So childcare is a truly underfunded um, occupation. And yet in a, a lot of cases, uh, childcare centers require that, uh, or or um, organizations that are childcare centers try to meet standards that have been set at the national level. And it's somewhat ironic as a result that people who are in these um, certified locations actually don't make living wages themselves. So that's one. Um, then you have the entire personal services category. Beyond that, you have the general services category. Beyond that, you have the retail sector. And then retail, you can break it into sort of hard goods versus soft goods. And there are big gaps between, you know, something which has a permanence, even like a furniture store versus a, uh, a small bodega. Gotcha. And the variability is, would you say that's increasing over time? I mean, have we seen more people, you, you hear about people with two or three jobs and things like that. Is that becoming the norm? Is that becoming, are, are we settling down a little bit here? Because we did see some bigger employers bump wages, but, you know, clearly some of those are, you know, part-time and they don't, they, 
they solve a quarter of the problem or half of the problem sometimes. But would you say that this trend is something that, you know, kind of is a growing concern? Um, there have been some noted organizations that have really gone the distance. So, for example, Bank of America is a good company to, to think about because they are making a proposal that they will be paying $25 an hour, I believe, in the next year. So you've got an organization like that. Um, but then you have Dollar General as another organization that is um, basically serving low-income people, paying people low incomes, and uh, there's often not a lot of choice for the kind of work that they have access to because these are, are uh, businesses that have some very specific spatial strategies. They don't, they don't show up on every street corner, right? They're just certain neighborhoods. So you almost have an instance where you have a low wage job in a low wage industry in a low wage area. Right. And I think something that many people uh, don't appreciate is that, uh, you know, this is not the end of the story for a lot of these workers. They obviously qualify for federal benefits when they're paid at levels, uh, wage levels that are significantly below, uh, below the amount that is required to live, right? It's very difficult to uh, assume that someone actually gets by on, on those dollar general wages, for example, uh, if you have any responsibilities beyond yourself you know, and, and your parents couch. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that, that's, is there something you want can you add on that front? You know, what do you see on that front? And obviously with, uh, COVID, we saw a pretty big bump in people being able to, you know, get above water in many ways. Uh, they could actually breathe a little bit because they, they're the, the, those subsidies were pretty meaningful. And now we're seeing a very sharp drop off. Right. So during COVID, we did a simulation where we, we took a family with um, two children and two adults, and we treated one of them as being unemployed and collecting unemployment, and one who was earning a minimum wage. And what we found was that with the benefits that were initially provided to families, almost all of the people in the country, except for a very small number, were actually above water. They, they had a kind of economic security that they may never have experienced before. And then as those have been peeled back, we are seeing situations in which people are attempting to pick up second jobs, third jobs sometimes, um, that they are going uh, once again back into the world where they're sorting down in the food that they can purchase. They have to balance um, medicine purchasing with gasoline purchasing. Uh, so we, <clears throat> I would suspect in another year, we're going to be pretty much back to a pre-COVID financial condition. Wow. And it's, and it's a condition, as you say, where they're reliant on public support in, in many ways. And, and that public support that we gave them allowed them to make some pretty dramatic changes to their lives that were positive, you know, so the, obviously the, the trick is to pay them well enough to to earn this, to get to this threshold. Um, I wanted to go back a little bit on your Bank of America. Do you remember uh, what their wages were, you know, five or six years, like what they're moving to 25. Do you have any memory of what it was? I thought it was 15, even 10 years ago was sort of their, how incrementally they moved and now they're moving pretty aggressively. 
Yeah, I don't know that it was 15. I think it was more like 16 okay. or so. But they have been very steady in what they're doing. And, and I have to say, I am surprised by that because the banking sector uh, has become you know, highly automated. Sure. And as a result, people have lost their jobs or their jobs have been de-skilled. And yet you don't hear somebody saying, yeah, my job has just gone from talking to people to staring at the wall. Um, they, they do appear to be you know, satisfied as employees for whenever they're interviewed. Yeah. And then that's a, as you say, a dramatic increase uh, in, in their wages and their lifestyle, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, they're not as reliant on payday lenders and things like that as well. So they're actually uh, able to operate at an interest rate that is uh, stomachable to closer to the average human, you know, the average American at, at any rate. Um, well, the other thing about COVID is mm -hmm. that we, that I, you know, I didn't calculate in the fact that there was a hiatus in people's student loans. Oh uh, yeah. So sure. it made a really big difference for people in being able to um, maybe get an apartment that's the right size for their family, just as an example. And we do know, and we do hear that people are starting to have to essentially step back in time in terms of their standard of living, mainly because of the release or, or the loss of those resources. The thing that was most interesting when we did it was to know that the majority of people were fine with the amount that they got. Right. It was, it was right. almost like the benchmark that we actually needed to have to say, okay, what does it take for all Americans to basically feel financially capable of covering their basic living costs? Yeah, that's that's a you had a real live test basically of what was what you have been uh, you know espousing for many many years and and well may I add, um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about employee retention. Um, clearly, you know, unemployment rate in the United States is uh, shockingly low. Even if you think about, I mean, what I think is quite amazing is in this, as you mentioned, this sort of we've had this massive cycle of automation. If you go to the grocery store, you barely see humans at the counter anymore, you know, the baggage or the, the people that would scan your stuff, uh, you're doing it yourself more and more. And yet unemployment rate is still very low, you know, it's still very much historically low. Um, have you seen people with respect to the living wage calculator coming to you for, you know, advice on retention? Because it's it's got to be top of mind. It's got to be top of mind for many, many companies. Can you just give us an example or two? Just We have been in contact and conversation, even pre-COVID, um, with the, the assortment of the largest companies in the United States. Then we can also say that we have people, uh, you know, a five-store hardware store in uh, South Carolina that uh, somehow figured out that's what they wanted to do. And so they would come to us and ask us, not only do they ask us what it ought to be, but they ask a lot of other questions. They ask questions like, I know it's really, childcare is really expensive, what do you say? Um, uh, housing is really expensive where we are, and there's not very much of it. Uh, so we have between, probably on a weekly basis, we have, you know, 15 direct emails, you know, conversing with us about what, what they should do. and. And they, and they are really, truly, genuinely um, interested in being a part of a solution that they see is a solution to a really big problem. And, and do you see some of them like kind of eyes wide open when you explain to them what all these costs add up to? And, and really, 
you know, where they need to be, you know, like, and this is just, I, I think the average employer doesn't, doesn't just, know, just doesn't know, you know, like they're a little divorced from, from the people at the very bottom of the food chain for, for their particular company. The prevailing wage is heavily subsidized by the government, frankly, in my opinion. So it's a, it's, so it's hard to know what the, the amount you can pay cleanly to someone to enable them to make uh, a living wage. So are you're seeing some movement in that front too? Yeah, for sure. A, a, a lot of companies do actually, when we first start to talk to them, we'll be on the phone and we'll be looking at the screen and they'll go, wow, I had no idea. You know, and then then if we tool through the the family structures, then they really it's you know shocking if you have three kids and you've got two adults and you're talking about how you're going to cover those costs. We get up into the fifty and sixty thousand sixty dollar an hour type job requirement. Sure, that's yeah. That I mean, it's raising children is not cheap and, you know, live life requires you to do a lot more uh, to earn more as these kids get older. I can vouch for that. Um, I wanted to shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, something that's been in the news the last couple of weeks. Uh, there is a company called Rourke Capital that is now in the process or, in, or very interested in purchasing Subway sandwiches, which is a massive sandwich. Everybody knows Subway sandwiches. Um, Rourke Capital as a company uh, is very much involved in owning franchises. That's their big kind of big, uh, that's what they do for a living. And if they are successful, they'll create just a monster of a company. So 40,000 franchises, the equivalent of three times what McDonald's has uh, in the United States. Uh, very concentrated ownership from a you know, wages perspective. Um, just wondering like how... You know, a big company like that, for example, would be able to look at what you do and understand better understand, you know, how does uh, how does their strategy with respect to retention uh, and other things, just obviously customer service and things like that, uh, kind of uh, pivot off the living wage. Yeah, so it's it is interesting. Franchise is such a such a, a unique component to the economy. Some franchise companies require that you purchase every single thing that, that they use in a franchise from the parent corporation. They don't, that the parent corporation at the same time doesn't have the influence over the individual franchisees. The challenge is that um, the, the costs that the, the super parent actually um, identify, therefore, have asking their, their franchise to um, pay can be quite onerous and you're sort of locked in. So that's one case where uh, you might say, well, why does McDonald's pay more money or somebody like that? And the answer is, is often their costs are not related to what their labor costs ought to be, right? That's, that's sure. one of the things. Um, and then there are uh, franchises uh, that are not even in the food service sector, and they have, um, you know, they're so they're so spread apart, so distant. Can you give us an example of what you mean by not in the food sector? What what other hotels and stuff, or what what do you what do you? Yeah, hotels would be one of those. Um, furniture stores could be one of those. Okay. Okay. Um, car washes could be one of those. I mean, basically, it's a financial mechanism, right? And and it, we think of it as mostly McDonald's and Taco Bell, et sure. cetera. 
but it's much broader than that and 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 it has consequences because it has much it has pressure on one end and pressure on the other right and and obviously in the last several years with inflation kind of moving all around there's a lot of pressure uh on the companies to continue to perform but at the same time it's uh you know the the wages of uh are sometimes struggle to keep up with with those costs that at the individual level right as the at the, at the employee level so it's a i'm sure it's a very difficult uh you know w balance for those companies over time but you know during the last um 18 months <laughs> i happen to have my own favorite um fast food joint and i try to visit it at least once a week uh -huh. and i remember the day i drove up and there was an 18 dollar and 75 cent an hour posting for a window person and I thought to myself, the world has changed. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it. And um, of course, I'm a chatterbox. So I asked the person at the window, I said, so what does it feel like making 1875? And she had this huge grin on her face. And she said, I can finally pay my bills, you know. And the thing about wages that are, I think, pretty interesting, at least historically, they tend to be sticky, right? You can fire people and then start over again, but then you've got all the costs involved. And this is not a labor market where there's a lot of flux, right? There's a lot of pe people are kind of stuck in where they are. Um, and so if wages are sticky, I wonder, are we going to end up with a two-tier economy again, you know, where the employer has to pay the wage that they had during COVID, and then as they see inflation eat away at their profits, uh -huh. and the cost of materials become really naturally more expensive, how they are going to actually respond? Other than the the, the one thing they do control is the wage rate. Sure, sure. And as you say, that because there's so much variability with inflation for all the other pieces. There's no no one smart enough to figure out the right number there, right? So you don't as a as an employer you don't have any confidence that what you're expecting for prices going forward for as you say you know meat or whatever it is these things are are very the uh, highly volatile these days. So it's it seems like it's a pretty uh, delicate de balance there at the moment and and with I would imagine on the corporate side they would tend to be more conservative on their cost estimates on the on the, the material side rather than the labor side, right? Where they feel. Yeah. So, so during COVID, one, so the tools, it's existed for 20 years and we're very modest and we don't stick our neck out to say more than we actually have evidence to uh, support what we're doing. But when COVID hit, you all of a sudden saw inflation in the, in the national economy that you hadn't seen since 07, 09. Uh, and all of a sudden you have gasoline up 30%, food up 25%. And it, it was so chaotic. Too. Yeah, yeah. And, and we, so for the first time, we actually dealt with the individual inflationary factor for each one of the components because we couldn't, balance anything otherwise. I mean, we, you know, because we're doing, we do checks in places to see just how far off we are or how close we are to what a basket of goods would look like. And um, it was really quite amazing and quite nerve wracking. I bet. I bet. Uh, getting to, towards the end here, but uh, what are, what's something that, you know, you're excited about with the living wage calculator? And this could be this year or next year or 
ideas that you're introducing to the calculator you think our listeners would be interested in or, you know, broadly employers would be interested in? Well, so in 2019, just before COVID, I had uh, 13 undergraduates at MIT go county by county to get an estimate of the cost of childcare. And um, that was the first time anybody had done it. Subsequently, the Bureau of Labor Statistics Women's Bureau has come up with an estimate. And so we're likely to incorporate that one and fill in the gaps that they have in in the absence of a few states. So that's one thing. Mm -hmm. Second thing is there's much better transportation cost data. It's a little bit more squirrely to work with, but it also, I think, would give us a, a more precise value. We're also going to change the um, healthcare value that we use from the federal government because we know where we benched initially is really not practical. You cannot, you're always stuck with another bill from healthcare if we don't do that otherwise. Um, my my dream is to actually get down to a sub-county level because I do individual location studies and I have never done one where it wasn't significantly more than the county level. Mm. And I think that from an employer's perspective, and actually I've had, I had one organization have me do 130 sites and it was, it was enormously um, insightful because all of a sudden they realized that where they were, they were thinking that where they were was um, a relatively low cost location. But in fact, the absence of supply of housing, for example, food, et cetera, all made it turn out to be that these were places that were more expensive than right. what, what one was expecting. So I'm really hoping to do that. And you know how chat, everybody speaks about chat GPT, you know, right. I, I, um, but I think there's other ways for us to actually model the you know, the smaller geographies. Yeah. And that makes sense. I mean, using averages can always be, you know, like you should assume that you're at the above the average, <laughs> you know, everybody wants to assume that they're at the average, but uh, there's always some uh, vagarities there. Right. And so you want to make sure that you're uh, when people talk about those wages, it's, that should be kind of the, the low, the floor, not the yes, ceiling. It, it is <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I guess is what I'm saying. That's exactly right. It is the floor. And that's what I find when I do local, really localized analysis. And there are companies that have us do that. So, and then, and people in HR, they worry about it. They worry about their people, right? It's just, it's this thing of, we all think that the boss knows, but the boss does not decide that, that issue. We all think, well, oh, it must be the person in human resources that doesn't want to give us enough money, but they don't think that either. It's this kind of weird situation of the two groups don't talk and they don't set values because if they set values together, they'd probably say we need to do this and maybe not that. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, as a parting, uh, so you have some parting thoughts for not just, you know, investors, obviously, but uh, broader for employers, because there are would be ones listening, uh, we hope. Uh, what would you, uh, you know, from, from if they want to get in contact with you, if they want to learn more, what's, what's a good way to go about that process? Well, so they, um, right now we're in the process of building, I ran the tool by myself for almost 20 years and it became a nightmare. I mean, all I could do was that. So we are now establishing an organization so that we can be more responsive and to build more and better kinds of products. And um, I would say that uh, 
my phone is on, my (laughs) computer is on, and uh, that you can even send a carrier pigeon if you think that's the right way to go. Um, uh, and, um, and I have a wonderful time talking to people. They're always so nice. And they also, they, you know, most people care. They do Sure. And, and they want to learn, you know, like they want, it's, it really is. I think that is a big misunderstanding is that it's, there's just this big divorce between, uh, you know, what's happening on the ground, especially after COVID and all the inflationary impacts that are having, that that's having and how people think, uh, you know, in the C-suite or even, you know, well below that. Um, so, well, thank you so much for spending time with us today, Amy. It was, as always, a pleasure. You can find uh, out more information on topics like uh, uh, wages by going to uh, the Bloomberg function, uh, B-I-E-S-G, on the Bloomberg terminal. If you have an ESG quandary or burning question you would like to ask BI expert analysts, send us an email at esgcurrents at bloomberg.net. Over our initial season, we have spoken to a range of experts, including a sitting U.S. congressman, academics, investors, standard setters, and a range of NGOs. We discussed various aspects of climate, the regulatory landscape, ESG disclosure trends, green debt, and practical applications of ESG data. We even heard from a leading anti-ESG advocate to understand their perspective. A brief hiatus for the holiday season We look forward to continuing the discussion next year. Our next episode will be back on Wednesday, January 10th. Happy holidays. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.